Ezra chapter 7 is where we are. This is a part two to what I began and opened up last week in terms of Ezra's spiritual leadership. And we worked through about five of the seven traits that I sort of uncovered from this text that show us what a true spiritual leader is like. Spiritual leadership is different than how the world describes and defines leadership. You can find all kinds of books on leadership and all kinds of seminars that you could um, sign up for and pay to be a part of, to be inspired, to do great things. But really, the world's leadership is different than how the church and the Bible defines leadership. In general, being a leader is being someone who is a man or woman of influence. In the spiritual kingdom, our influence is different than how the world defines it. The world defines successful leadership as gaining a lot of money, gaining prowess, gaining power, gaining momentum, moving people and influencing people to do things pragmatically. That's worldly leadership. And not all of that is wrong or bad, but as you define spiritual leadership, you're always doing one thing. You're always talking about leadership in terms of a spiritual dimension or heart change, life change, like we just observed in this baptism, transformation. The goals in spiritual leadership are different than the goals in terms of how the world defines it. We are leading because we have a God in heaven that we want to follow. We are leading for his glory. We're leading to promote Christ's fame in the world. We're leading so that people will be transformed from the inside out, no matter what happens to us, no matter if anybody knows our name or not. We're just leading because God's called us to do it, and he's redesigned our hearts to lead in the way that Christ led. How did Christ lead? Well, he came to give his life a ransom for many. He came not for fame or glory. He came to give. He came to sacrificially serve. Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 and following is where Jesus said, look, the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. They, they're sort of oppressive. They want to be great among you. But to be great, you must first be a servant. To be first, you must first be a slave. The Son of Man came not to, ser- not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. And he served you and me all the way to the cross at Golgotha. The ultimate pinnacle picture of service comes in the form of the second member of the Trinity, fully God, fully man, dying for you and me, buying our salvation so that we could live. Guess what? You're leading no matter whether you acknowledge it or not. You're leading. You're either leading well or you're leading not so well. You're influencing people with your passivity or you're influencing people with your proactivity. And I want to call all of you, men, women, boys and girls, to consider how God has called you to be a leader in his kingdom. Now, some of us are more tipping the scales towards behind-the-scenes servant leadership, and some of us would tip the scales more towards upfront teaching leadership. But the body of Christ is a wide body of influencers who are gifted and created differently and we all are called to be involved we're all part of the great commission 
And so we all have something to learn from this man called Ezra. So look at verse, verses 1 through 10 here. We're looking at seven essential traits or characteristics of a spiritual influencer or effective leader. Number one, we looked last week, and we're going to do a running start up to um, the last two traits. But number one is that a spiritual leader has to be credible. Credible. Verses 1 through 5 gives a list of Ezra's credentials or why he was credible. It's really a list uh, pointing to his Hebrew heritage and ancestry. Sixteen names, by the way, are sort of leading up to Ezra and establishing him as a priest. Ezra was a priest in the line of Aaron, who was the brother of Moses. So it's a pretty strong credential here for this man. But this is simply a man of the word. He's a man uniquely put in this context to lead people into the scripture. Ezra comes at a time when the nation of Israel, they had celebrated and finished a temple building project in Jerusalem. I should say a rebuilding temple project where it was destroyed and now it's brought back. Um, children of Israel who had been exiled had come back 80 years before and then built that temple within the first 20 years. And now it's been 60 years since that time, since the temple was completed. And so now, 60 years into this reestablishment of worship, they need a man to come in with the word of God and bring some equilibrium to strengthen the movement with the Bible. That's how God works often. You sort of start something, it gets going, and then you got to fortify it with the word of God. That's how ministries get strong. And so this man of the word was called to lead with the truth. He had a reputation, though. And I just want to point this out. These 16 names, um, they sort of establish Ezra. And in the same way, we are established. You know why? Because if you are in Christ, you know what kind of heritage you had, have, and I said this last week, you are in Christ and your heritage goes back to Jesus. Okay, Aaron was a picture of Christ. You have been bought into this ancestry through the blood of Jesus Christ and you are identified with Jesus. So you say, what kind of platform do I have to open the Bible? You're a Christian. You're of Jesus Christ, and you're considered to be one of his priests and communicators of, of truth. And I'm going to show you from Ezra's life and testimony that you too are qualified to bring the book, to bring the word of God as one of his fellow soldiers, a co-equal heir of Christ. Your reputation is based on the blood of Jesus Christ and our blamelessness comes from not only the discipline of hard work and grace, but from Jesus Christ himself. So number one, you have to be credible. Number two, a spiritual leader is cosmopolitan. You find this in verse six. Ezra went up from Babylonia. Now the scene is set where Ezra is gonna lead a second wave of exiles back home to Jerusalem. 60 years later, the temple's been established and Ezra's getting this second army to come home, but he was born in Babylonia. So he's new to Jerusalem. He doesn't really know what he's in for, but he was, he was raised in the New York City 
of the world at the time were like London. It's like a multi-million populated place that is uniquely cosmopolitan, Babylonia. This is um, sort of the, the cosmopolitan Mecca of the world. And what I want to point out is that Ezra was able to be communicating with the king even though his ancestry was in, was in Hebrew ancestry, Hebrew culture. He was a Jew. So this Jew was able to get outside of his comfort zone and put his life on the line and communicate with the king about what he wanted to have happen. And I just point that out because you know what? To call you to spiritual leadership is really to call you to come out of your comfort zone. Paul put it this way. He said, look, I became all things to all men that I might win some. He wasn't a legalist, but at times he would act more wooden and more, um, more legalistic-like just to relate to people. He would act like a weaker brother. He would, he would abstain from things. At times, he, he would act like a stronger brother, and, and he would just freely move and traffic between different cultures and different people. And no matter where people were on the spiritual continuum, how godly or godless they were, he was relating to them. He wasn't afraid of people. It's so important for us to be able to put away our fear of man and put ourselves out there. And I think oftentimes the reason we don't want to open the book and try to help people and teach them with the Bible is we don't want people to ask us about our life. We don't want people to know what we don't know. We, we're afraid that we might look or feel stupid if we talk to people who are not like us. But we're all co-equal heirs in Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek or barbarian, or Scythian, or male, nor female. It's all one in the body of Christ, so we should be able to reach out to people in community. And I've heard it again and again, the, the greatest blessing of coming together in a community group is that you're, you're, sort of, you're sort of compiled together by the Spirit of God with people who aren't like you. And so you're showing up, and they're, they're different than who you are, but because you have a gospel conversation, all of a sudden you begin to connect and bond with people that you wouldn't normally say, hey, let's go out on a double date with, right? And so suddenly you're friends with people of different ages and backgrounds and uh, different complexities of life where you are connecting and you're watching the gospel be put on display. Just like it was put on display in the waters of baptism, you were connecting, you were resonating with Paul, and you don't know him from Adam. Many of you don't. He's new to our church, but you were connecting with him, and that is the ministry of being willing to be cosmopolitan or open um, in a multicultural way. Thirdly, a spiritual leader is capable. I just want to point this out again. Ezra identified his spiritual gift and was using it for the glory of God. Verse 6, he was a scribe skilled in the law, skilled in the law of Moses. He saw this law as a gift, it says. It had been given to him. Now, again, they didn't have temple worship established up in Babylon. They didn't have Bible school up there, but they had some scrolls, obviously, that had been carted up there um, from Jerusalem. And he was making ready use of whatever was available to him. And he was able to dig into the text and find out what it meant and then launch it into people's hearts so that it would change them because he was willing to study and exercise his skill. The word skill, it literally means being quick with the word of God. That doesn't mean that you're, you know, sort of irresponsible with the truth. It means that Ezra 
read and studied and knew the Bible and had facility with it where he could answer questions and, and apply it quickly to people's hearts. He wasn't a scribe with a lying pen as Jeremiah rebuked. He wasn't a hypocritical scribe as Jesus rebuked in Matthew 23. He was a man of the book and he was a, a man of God who was trained for the kingdom of heaven as Jesus put it in Matthew 13. He was skilled in the scripture like the psalmist in Psalm 45, 1. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe or a skilled scribe. He was a preacher. Turn over to one book over to Nehemiah chapter 8. Just want to show you his preaching ministry as a preview to where we're going to be in um, a short while. We'll be in Nehemiah and starting that book. Nehemiah was a man who showed up with the word of God. It says in verse 1, he was a scribe and he was bringing the book of the law. He brought the book. He was bringing it so they could understand what they heard. Verse 2, he was a scribe. He stood on a wooden platform. Some people say that's the beginning of a wooden pulpit ministry. It was made for that purpose. They, verse 6, they held their hands up high and shouted amen and amen. And then they bowed their faces and heads low to the ground and worshiped. And then in verse 8 it says, they read from the book. These are the preachers, including Ezra, from the law of God clearly they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. I just want to point out one idea here. The word clearly, clearly, that word is talking about explaining the scripture paragraph by paragraph and interpreting it. You say, I can't do that. I can barely, you know, understand the Bible at all. Well, I just want to challenge you. Listen, your spiritual effectiveness will come from studying the book. And a lot of people, I think, challenge the idea that being a Bible student is, is really important for being effective in ministry. They want to say, well, you're either this scholar who's in an ivory tower and you're sort of shut away from people or you're out serving and doing the work of God. You're either this Bible student who's studying doctrine or you're really out evangelizing, getting it done. And I want to say that these things go hand in hand together. You got to get in the book. And a lot of times the reason that we're not getting after it, wanting to get into Bible studies with people or wanting to share things with people is because we haven't Put the word of God on our hearts because when something's on your heart and something's burning, you got to get it out to somebody else. And that's the ministry of the word of God. That's who this guy was, Ezra. He was skilled in the Bible and that's what inspired him to go to the king and be this courageous leader and say, hey, we got to go down to Jerusalem. I got to take a bunch of people down there and bring the book to them, the word of God. And so he was able to explain it. I would challenge all of us. Let's examine our hearts. Are we supposed to be those people who are explaining the scripture, giving the understanding of the scripture, the sense of the word of God? Back to Ezra chapter 7. This is a man who was credible. He was cosmopolitan. And he was capable in the word of God. And now, fourthly, this man was courageous, courageous. He wasn't afraid. Now, we're going to see, we're going to read actually in Ezra chapter 8 that he was concerned at times. I mean, he has a real transparent confession about fears, but he was able to get past the fear of man. 
and go into the presence of the king like Esther did. A few years before, Esther went to King Ahasuerus and said, listen, please pray for me. She appealed to the Jews and said, pray for me. And for three days, they prayed for her because if she went into the presence of the king and the king didn't offer the scepter of affirmation that this woman has come in, then she would be killed. And that's the same conditions that we find Ezra in. But he was inquiring. Look at verse 6. It says, and, he had, and the king had granted him all that he asked. All that he asked. In other words, Ezra was asking. He was getting after it. He wasn't just sitting in the study with the scrolls. He was putting himself out there. He was proactive as a leader. And he was an influencer because of it. A lot of times people will say, well, if you emphasize, if you overemphasize the sovereignty of God and, and how God is working everything out, that that makes us inactive or ineffective. And I think that that contradiction is something you don't find in Scripture. Instead, you paint a high view of God who's controlling everything, and then you are compelled because of that safety net, because of that, that truth, that emboldening truth in your heart. You get after it and you go for it. You put your life on the line for Christ. And that's what this man was willing to do. He was serving in the strength that God supplied him. Number five, a spiritual leader is also consecrated. Look at the end of verse six. He was given the request of the king for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. This was a man of prayer. He walked with God. He knew God intimately, personally. He wasn't just relying upon the fact that he was in the line of Aaron. That wasn't enough. He wasn't just laying back on his ancest ancestral credentials. He was relying on the living Lord. If God is blessing you, people will see it. Oftentimes, the reason that we are gathering a following is because, not because we can identify exactly why, but more we just see and observe and know, and people are observing that God's hand is on you. God's working. There's blessing. And there was blessing on this man's life. It's repeated six times. This phrase that God's hand of blessing was upon him is repeated six times through this book. It's two times in the book of Nehemiah for Nehemiah himself. The hand of the living God was on these leaders. That's why leadership is not something that we prop ourselves up with, with a position or a title. I mean, being a deacon or a deaconess is no power play in this church. To being a, an elder should never be a power play in a church. We're servant leaders. We want God's blessing to be moving through us. To be a community group's leader is not something that should drive our ego or make us feel any more important or special. 1 Peter chapter 5 says that spiritual leadership is not something you should ever lord over people, where you are legalistic, legalistically compelling people to do things. We're not to be Pharisees who bind people's consciences with legalistic heavy loads. No. We, we're, we're serving in the strength that God supplies, 1 Peter chapter 4. And God is working through us, and a leader is someone who goes, hey, wow, they're there's somebody following me. I, somebody actually wants to learn the word of God from me. And it's not anything in and of myself. It's just something that God is doing in my life. It's an intangible thing. But that's how you know whether or not you're on the sidelines or whether or not you're making disciples. 
whether or not someone is learning the word of God from you. And I would encourage you, pray for that. Pray for that ministry of the word of God in someone else's life. That's being a leader and that's serving God for his glory. Spiritual leaders are people that we identify. It's not something that we prop up. It's something that you see God working out. Well, these are compelling traits. Credible, being credible, cosmopolitan, capable, courageous, and consecrated. And it was because of these things that we find that Ezra was compelling. He was a compelling leader. Let me read verses 7 through 9 just to show you this. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem for the good hand of his God was on him. So here's the scene. Ezra, he's been given passage. He's been given an affirmation, a green light to take people down from Babylon, down 900 miles on a treacherous journey, down to Jerusalem to fortify those worshipers, to equip them. For basically a church full of gifted members to come down and establish and strengthen sort of a church plant movement that's happened down in Jerusalem. And it was not an easy journey. It took 119 days to get down there because this was a journey compiled of men, women, children, and elderly people. And that's what Ezra was responsible for. He was asking to lead this group and bring them down there, whoever would go. And many people did, as you see in the passage here, that some went with Ezra. Some went. Some saw Ezra as this kind of leader, and they followed him. They followed him. It was springtime. It, it was uh, the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. And it says, for on the first day of the first month, he began to go. So it's springtime. This first month is leading into the springtime. And it took several months, kind of like uh, now till August, to get down there. 900 miles, treacherous journey. They could have been ambushed. Look at Ezra chapter 8. Let me just give you the context. Ezra is sort of, you know, preparing the trip. It's going to be 10 miles a day. That's all they could handle with children and older people. Down the Euphrates River, alongside that river, they're going down there. And he finds out in verse 15 that they don't have any Levites with them yet or enough Levites. And so he stalls the trip for three days. And then in verse 21, it says that he proclaims a fast. Look at this. It says, then I proclaimed a fast there at the river, Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. Notice why. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Ezra is a transparent guy. This is his own testimony here. 
He's saying, look, we started to go and I called a fast. I said, let's wait three days and pray and not eat for three days and ask God's blessing. Why? Because he knew that they're just, they're up for a very treacherous mission. People could die. There could be enemies or robbers or strangers or people who don't like us, who ambush us. So he calls for a fast. Again, he's trusting in God, but he's also being responsible to pray for God's blessing. He knew God's hand was on him, but he's also praying and not presuming upon God so that God will strengthen him for the journey. What happened? Look at verse 31. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the 12th day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. So anyway, they went in the Jewish calendar. They went on the first month, which would be springtime, and they got there in August and they were safe for the journey. What I want to point out here is that verse 7, look back up there. Some of the people followed him. Some of the people followed him. Some, some of the people means that these are people who are nondescript. There were people whose gifts weren't um, overtly known. You've got some people in verse 7 where there are literal priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, temple servants. You've got ushers, you've got greeters, you've got singers, you've got prayers, you've got teachers, okay? Those are identified. Then you've got everybody else. The nondescript, some of the people. Who's more important? Wrong question. They're all equally important. In the body of Christ, again, neither Jew nor Greek, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, male-female, they're all important and all essential for the body of Christ. Romans 12, it says we are individually members of one another. The word member, it's a word that's synonymous for body parts. You ever hurt your toe? You think uh, that your brain is more important than your toe? Well, you know what? If you hurt your toe bad enough, everything stops no matter how smart you are, right? It hurts. And that's how it works in the body of Christ. We're all, it's all essential for all of us to be healthy players, for the body to move forward, for the ministry of the church to be strong and to propagate the gospel mission. So we need all of you to participate, all of you to be active members. You say, I'm not a happy person. Well, are you serving in the body of Christ? Well, I don't feel inspired to be part of church life. Well, are you teaching the word of God? When that's happening... The body is strengthened, and you are strengthened personally and spiritually. That's the point here. Ephesians 5, or 4, 11, and 12, it talks about how all of the members of the body of Christ are being equipped to serve in the ministry, to build the ministry and work up for the body of Christ. All of us. Now I want to look at the last trait here. The last and final trait is that Ezra was committed. He was committed to the scripture. He was credible, cosmopolitan, capable, courageous, consecrated, compelling, and he was committed. And this is where I want to spend the bulk of our time on verse 10. This man had a sold out, full on, all in commitment to the book to the scripture. 
Now, when I say that, I'm saying it in this sense. He was committed to God. He knew his God. And he knew that the scrolls that he was a scribe of or a skilled teacher of were the inspired, living word of God. It was the book of Moses. So he knew the weight behind what he wielded. He knew that this was a power tool. For those of you who are woodcutters, he knew that he had a sharp, powerful chainsaw that could cut through anything. Okay, this, this is a power tool that he was committed to. It was no sort of convincing him as to whether or not he was going to study, whether or not he was going to get after it. He was going to get after it because he knew what power was in this message. And that is so important for us to understand. There is no other word of God but this scripture. This is the word of the living God. Any spiritual leader is a person who speaks truth in love, but is speaking truth. And a person's weight of message comes from his accuracy with the Bible. How do you know if someone is speaking for God or not? Well, does their message match the book? There's a lot of people who attract a lot of people, you know, leaders, teachers, inspirational speakers who can gather a crowd, but are they speaking the book? And if they're speaking the book, then the more the merrier. I applaud leaders who are speaking the message broadly and widely. But the way that you discern whether or not someone speaks for God is, are they speaking the Bible? Either literally speaking it, reading it, or explaining it. That's how you know. That's how I know if someone is a spiritual leader. That's this man. Look at verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord. Stop there. Set his heart. The word heart means mind, will, and emotions in the Hebrew mindset. A person's heart was their central um, mission control center of everything that they think and do. To set your heart on something means whole life commitment. It was to enlist and say, I'm in, you know, no matter what happens to me. It's a person like Timothy was called to be, to preach the word in season and out of season. Where it's popular to preach and where it's unpopular to preach. You're all in. You're the Navy SEAL with the book. No matter what happens, I'm all in. You're special forces. That's this kind of commitment. It's Jesus Christ who set his face towards Jerusalem, no matter what, he was going to the cross. It's that kind of commitment that fires a person and propels a person's ministry. And I just want to say, listen, we need to be like Ezra, all in, full-on heart for the book, the Bible, the Word of God. This kind of commitment is what has driven me all of my life as a Christian. For some reason, God planted this sort of seed of affection for the Bible in my heart at age 17. I've told you, some of you before, I, I wasn't really a, a big-time reader or I wasn't a student at all until I became a Christian. And when I became a Christian, I learned how to study by studying the Bible. I learned concentration by studying the Bible. I learned commitment and follow-through by studying the Bible. All of my work ethic comes from studying the Scripture. It's this sort of flame that lights up in the heart of a believer where you realize that the power comes through the Word of God and multiplied ministry comes through a commitment to the teaching of Scripture. 
And your life will be defined by what you learn. And your, your, your deathbed moment where you're, you're ready to die, will really the accounting of, of what you did will be measured by how involved you were with transferring truth to the lives of your family and transferring truth to create new life where people came to Christ. Again, a baptism, a transformed life, that's what matters in this life. I've done a lot of things in church and in training and school and reading and everything is driven by my ministry here in teaching from the pulpit. Everything. It always has been that way. Everything I do, whether it's nursery duty, whether it's children's ministry, whether it's college ministry, young adult ministry, high school ministry programs, door-to-door evangelism, collecting cans for missions. I mean, all these things that I've been a part of that many of you have participated in, it's all driven by my passion for the book. I'm either doing what, it, what God has called me to do through the Bible, or I'm actually speaking it to other people. It's life and doctrine. They go together. They don't contradict. They don't repel each other. They're always interlaced for effective ministry. And that's what this man was committed to. Psalm 119, the passion of the psalmist is where he said, the the word, it makes wise the simple. I was a very simple person and I'm still very simple-minded. Except I have gained wisdom from the word. That's it. Psalm 119, 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Psalm 78, 8 says that there are stubborn people and rebellious people whose heart, are not, heart is not steadfast in the scripture. So I'm trying to get across the message I hope I'm conveying. We should love the Bible. Is that clear to you? We should love the book. Well, how do you do it? Let me just give you a little bit of a how-to. It's summed up in one word meditation meditation and I pull that from this idea of setting your heart on the scripture meditation is something that I think people relegate to the spiritual type people those who are cloistered away you know and set apart almost in a monastery as monks or nuns who are the meditative people right no meditation is for Christians and meditation is not an option It's not optional whether or not you should meditate. The Bible says meditate on the word day and night. Psalm 1, turn over there. If you meditate on the word of God day and night, you're going to be like a tree that's firmly planted by streams of water. Verse 3, that yields its fruit in its season and the leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked aren't so. They're like the chaff that are blown away in the judgment. Listen. Have you ever seen a tree that's firmly rooted? Basically, and unless you, you know, got a pretty good chainsaw, but the roots, basically, they're dug in and that thing's not going anywhere. It's very difficult to take a stump out of the ground. Why? Because roots are strong. You remember the windstorm that happened before this winter that we had, a pretty strong winds in the fall, I think. The wind whips, uh, thankfully, off the top of our house and blows the trees into our yard, not back on our house. Sorry about those of you who live across the street. However, we had a big tree fall in the windstorm in the fall, and it just fell forward onto the ground. But what I noted was how strong the roots were still firmly planted into the ground. It's a very strong 
picture of what God does through creation to latch or, or embed trees into the ground. Have you ever seen vines grow up and literally like destroy concrete buildings or envelop giant massive trees? Well, it's that kind of vine growth down into the ground where it's drinking in the nutrients, where it's literally holding soil together that's pictured here. And it's that idea that as we are grounded in scripture, we are grounded in our relationship with God and it comes through meditation. Meditation's like looking at the word of God as if, you know, you're holding a hot, hot water and you got a tea bag and you meditate by, by immersing the tea bag into the hot water and you watch the truth as it permeates through your mind. You're thinking on it. I like to do that. I, I will study the word of God. And then I'll go out into my backyard and jump on my trampoline and I'll play with my kids, but I'll also be thinking about things that I studied. And when I do that, it sinks into my heart, into my life. And that's the passion that you have to have for the Word of God that is compelling, courageous, it's attractive. People see that in your life. If you look back in Ezra chapter 7, Look at verse 11. Artaxerxes, this pagan king who's in control of the free world, he says, this is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest. It says that Artaxerxes observed something in this scribe Ezra. He observed that he was a man learned in the matters of the commandment of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Artaxerxes didn't believe it, but he knew that Ezra knew the Bible and that he believed it. And that's what compelled him to open the doors. In verse 13, it says he made a decree and said, Look, if anyone of you want to freely follow this man that's possessed by the scripture, then go. I mean, that's, that's a strong order coming from a very powerful man. But the power of the word of God in the life of Ezra superseded the power of the king. And the king was sort of yielding to that, saying, man, I don't want to get in the way of this kind of power. And so if any of you want to go, go with this man. He's compelling. It was because of his commitment to scripture. And it comes from meditation. If you want to be compelling as a leader, you got to have a commitment to the book. What does this look like practically? Look at verse 10 again. Three steps. He studied the law. That's the first step. He studied it. The word study here is a, a, a passion word. It's an energy word. I've seen it happen in my own life. I get excited to study the Bible. It's a word that's used in the Old Testament for people coming for someone's blood. It's, it's, a, it's an army term. It's a, it's a passion term. It's a desperation term. It's a, a term that's used for finding a wild animal in the woods. It's being excited about what you have in front of you. 2 Timothy 4.2 says we're to study to show ourselves approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It's a passion to study. And a lot of times people don't study the Bible because they're not studying with mission in mind. You have to have a mission for your own soul in meditation, and you've got to have a mission to transfer what you learned into somebody else's heart. If that's happening, Wild horses won't, won't, won't keep you from getting into the Bible. You won't have to geek up to get into the Bible. You'll just say, all right, well, I need it for my own heart. I feel weak, so I need to be strong. So I'm going to strengthen myself with Bible study. And then I'm going to get with somebody because I'm so excited about a message in my heart. I've got to say it to somebody else. 
That's the teaching ministry. Well, secondly, he was a doer. He not only studied the law, but he studied to do it. To do it. It didn't just live in his life um, in study, but it lived through his life in front of other people. He knew what the Bible meant, and he was a doer of the Word of God, not just a hearer only, James 1.22. He wasn't someone who was just puffed up in knowledge. He was a doer. And then thirdly, the third step is to teach it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. This reflects 2 Timothy 2.2. It's the invisible advancement of the kingdom of God. It's how God works. It's, it's how God builds his root system that's called the body of Christ. The body of Christ is not just a large crowd of people gathered in a stadium. The body of Christ is multinational around the world. And it's happening whether we see it or not. There's a lot of Christians being built up behind the scenes through the mission and transfer of one person teaching another person the Bible. I reminded of a story one time a guy told me where he knew a guy who was in Maryland who had started up a men's study. This is decades ago. And at the end of this little men's study, all the men, you know, they went to different places, transferred to different regions and churches. And one of those people in his study was Francis Schaefer. You never know who you're building into. Right? That's the beauty of gospel spiritual leadership. It's not about fame or prowess or, or some sort of external credential or commendation. It's just building into people. And then certain people become powerful influencers, either up front or behind the scenes. And the body of Christ is moving. Well, this man taught the Bible. I like how Derek Kidner put it. He said, his study was saved from unreality. His conduct from uncertainty and teaching from insincerity and shallowness. This guy was the real thing. He was authentic because he lived it and he transferred it to other people. That's what I'm calling all of us to. I'm calling you to enlist. Be part of this. Whether it's community group leadership, whether it's teaching Sunday school, teaching Awana, teaching during this hour to children, teaching in the youth group, teaching an adult class. Uh, there are things in your hearts that God is resonating with you on and is moving you to do. I'm certain of it. This body needs to be more active and I'm calling you to enlist. Sign up. What is it that God wants you to do with the word of God, with his word? What a privilege it is to be able to give the word of God to other people. That's the ministry of the kingdom of God. And I'm calling you to join me in this ministry of teaching. These seven traits are Required, but they are part of the natural, normal, spiritual life. We are, we are credible, cosmopolitan, capable, courageous, consecrated, compelling, and it's all based on our commitment to the Word of God. It's the normal Christian life, and I think we should all get on board. Here, listen to these uh, take-home points, and I, they've even been placed in your bulletin this week for you to follow. Your spiritual, your spiritual credibility, it begins and ends with the grace of the gospel. I just want to encourage you. We're getting ready to observe communion, which is a gospel symbol. And this communion service should embolden you to say, you know what? I've got a checkered past. I've got some bumps and bruises. I might not feel qualified for certain opportunities, but my qualifications stem from 
the cross work of Jesus Christ and the grace of God alone. Number two, your willingness to move towards others who are not like you is motivated by what? Grace. There's grace in your heart. That's why you lay down your fear is because God's moved you in your heart to get to know people who are different than you are. Number three, spiritual gifts come by grace and are enabled by grace. You might say, look, I don't have anything left in the tank. I can't stay up late or get up early. I can't muster up the strength to get with somebody. Well, God gives you the spiritual resources to serve in that way and the wisdom to make choices to let some things go so that other things become a priority. It's enablement by grace. Number four, your fear of man can be overcome by grace. I would imagine if I asked for a showing of hands, which I won't, if we were to say, look, how many of you are afraid of men or women sometimes? How many of you have experienced the fear of man? That is a real sin. And a lot of us deal with fear in multiplied ways, either by withdrawing from people or overbearing people. But fear of man is a version of pride that is melted by God's grace. It's overcome by the grace of God in our hearts. We say, listen, what do I, what do I have to be proud about in my own life? I was saved by grace, and so I'll enter into all different kinds of people's lives. Your sense of unworthiness is answered by God's grace. We've talked about that a lot. We're in Christ and our credibility comes from him. Number six, your ability to compel others to follow you comes through grace. You say there's nothing at all externally compelling about me, right? You say there's nothing compelling about me. I can't do certain things. I'm not compelling. Good. That's when the grace of God shines through and is compelling because you're out of the way, right? That's where we got to be. We want to be nameless and faceless and behind the scenes and watch God do something that we can stand back and go, wow, look what God is up to in my life. Not because of me, but because of the grace through us. Number seven, your commitment to the Bible endures by the unending resource called grace. Again, we've got a pipeline into the grace of God and so we can Give the word of God, even when it's tough, even when you're criticized, even when people tear you down, even when people argue against you, or even when you're exposed. Watch this. A lot of people don't want to open the Bible because they, they share what they know, but they don't want to be exposed for, which, for what they don't know, right? They, they share their life, but they don't want to be exposed for who they also really are. They don't want to be asked the hard questions. But the grace of the gospel, it causes us to be bold and to put ourselves out there in vulnerability and to go for it. And it's worth it to see transformation. Let's bow for prayers. We prepare for communion. Father, we thank you for the symbol of communion. It, it Lord, is a grace in our lives where we are able to re-embrace the realities and truths of the gospel. We thank you for the baptism that we, we observed and the fact that you are transforming lives in front of us. But God, this is another symbol of the gospel through the bread and the cup where we are faced with the reality of what you did for us. Lord, it is not grace that we have deserved. It is ill-deserved grace. Lord, we are, we're your enemies. We were against you. We were born in sin. And God, you rescued us through your ministry of adoption. You called yourself Father to us. And you made a way through your own Son for us to be clean, for us to be forgiven. 
And so, God, we thank you that through the gospel, we have experienced the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, through this communion time, we want to celebrate what you've done for us. I would ask all of you to remain in prayerful meditation on the cross as you keep your heads bowed and think about your own life. Think about your calling. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. And if you are believing for the first time, then freely participate in communion. If you need to get something right with someone, make that commitment to do that and ask forgiveness for anything that is wrong in your life. Lay it at the feet of Jesus. Cast your cares upon him during this time and examine yourself. The Bible in 1 Corinthians 11 warns us not to drink from the cup or eat the bread in an unworthy manner because we will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. But we are to examine ourselves and eat the bread and drink the cup by grace. And so I would just exhort you now to take some time in prayerful meditation. And men, come forward and prepare to um, pass out the bread. Examine ourselves during this time. And thank you for the symbol of the body of Christ that will be passed out now amongst us in the bread. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this wafer here is a symbol because we are observing this in the context of the local church. It is a symbol of the body 
that was given for us. When Jesus was with his disciples, with his most intimate um, relationships, he gathered together, just like we're gathering in relationship together, in community together. And he was, he was at Passover, but he was saying that his body was going to be given on the cross. He was betrayed, but he willingly went on our behalf. Let's remember that in gratitude as we partake together. Men at this time, if you'll continue the communion by passing the cup now. Well, this uh, juice is symbolically red for us to remind us of the blood of Jesus Christ that was spilt on our behalf. The beauty of the cross is to think of it in two ways. One, the once-for-all sacrifice that was given for us. It was shed on Mount Golgotha from the body of Christ as he was pierced on our behalf, as he was beaten it was a symbol of the fact that Jesus, in fact, died on our behalf. So without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. That happened once and for all. Secondly, it is a symbol of our continual, continually being cleansed in our conscience from our sins. 
even though we were covered and atoned for and forgiven once and for all, we still sin as Christians. And so where do we go? Where do we go to salve our consciences? How do we go on when we've sinned as believers? Hebrews 9, 9 says that we have a cleansed conscience because of the blood of Christ. And so we reflect upon the blood of Christ for that, that renewing of conscience. So let's do that together as we partake. Father God, we thank you for the new covenant. We thank you, God, that we stand in grace. We thank you that we live by grace. Thank you for this gospel community. I pray, God, that we would truly follow you because you are worthy to be followed. You are the ultimate leader. You are the true senior pastor of this church and all churches, God. You are the Lord, and we humbly submit to you in gratitude because you've cleansed us from the inside out. Let us live for you and display our gifts, not for our own glory, but for your glory as a mosaic pieced together by your grace for your glory. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I invite you to stand up as we're closing off here. Some of you will stay and some of you will go, and that is fine, but I want to freely offer the invitation for, for you to all come next door to the chapel area. We've got some food set aside for you there. We've got food in the back for fellowship, but food over here for those of you who want to stay for our community groups meeting. Pastor Steve Pauls is going to be leading that. I'll be in dialogue with him out loud and dialogue with the group as we talk about where we're going trying to foster and create a, a community groups movement that I'm very excited about and is very needful for our body so we can get to know each other in a very special way. So be aware of that and many other things in the bulletin. God's grace be upon you and you are dismissed.